And that's why it's good for you to have a copy there in front of you, please, so that you can actually read it and see that what I'm saying is actually what's in your Bible. Okay? Uh, well, I want to ask by starting with this particular question, and that is, what is it that you are most passionate about? What is it that you are most passionate about? Perhaps it's sport, perhaps it's a relationship, perhaps it's fashion, perhaps it's your degree, perhaps it's... The question is, what is it that you are most passionate about? I can, uh, let me tell you about some people who I know are passionate about a particular sport. I live down in the St. George area, and while I'm not a big rugby league fan, uh, I was raised on rugby union, which is the game they play in heaven apparently, so I'll stick with that. Uh, but nevertheless, I live in the St. George area. I can tell you whenever the St. George Illawarra Dragons are playing at one of their home grounds, which is down at Cogra uh, Jubilee Stadium. And do you know how I can tell you that? Because whenever the fans of the St. George Dragons are playing at the home ground, they are everywhere. They are decked out in the club colours. Their cars have streamers on them. They have flags coming out the top of the cars. Whenever you see a St. George Illawarra Dragons supporter, they are wearing red and white. They are dressed in beanies, scarves, gloves, jackets, pants. They dress their kids up. They dress their dogs up. They dress like you just, the red and white army just descend upon this stadium. Okay. You can tell they're passionate about supporting their team. Now, I bump into other people sometimes in my various sort of facets of life, and I say to them, do you support rugby league? Occasionally, sometimes when I have conversations. And they say, well, I support the St. George Dragons. I say, well, I don't. Um, even though I live in the St. George area. How passionate are you about supporting them? Oh, occasionally when there's a game on, I might click on and watch it. They're not really, really very passionate about supporting the team, are they? See, the passionate people are the people who go all out, who take every opportunity to do almost whatever it takes to support their team. So my question is, how passionate are you about the Christian faith? And right from the outset, I want to recognise there may be some people here today who aren't Christian. In which case, a warm welcome to you. I'm glad that you're with us and that you're interested in finding out about Christianity. But my question still stands. How passionate are you about your Christian faith? Could it be said of you that you are as passionate about your Christian faith as some of these particular supporters of the St. George Illawarra Dragons? Now, for some of you, I can tell that you must be that passionate because you wore your Neil Norton Blue hoodie every day of the summer. I'm so glad you didn't. I'll just take it off and give it a wash. Some of you turned up, I heard, that this morning, someone in the room with you, not the staff in the room, and you were all passionate about your God and your church. Now, on one hand, either that person has a lot of free time, or they stopped studying last semester and they're still looking for a job, and so they just decided to turn up. But actually, no, this person was actually an enrolled student. That's, that's pretty passionate to turn up to every single one of the events, isn't it? Now, we need to be a little bit careful that we don't measure our passion purely by outward, outward appearances. Not that I'm necessarily trying to argue that. But to some extent, the way in which you spend your time, the way in which you spend your money, the way in which you conduct your activities is a bit of an indication of how passionate you are about something. So my question is, how passionate are you about the Christian faith? Well, as we uh, look into this letter of uh, 1 Thessalonians that's before us, uh, one of the things that we want to try and do is, I think, look to the future. We want to try and see where are we going. Because in some senses, the thing that you are most passionate about is the thing that you are hoping to achieve. In the same way that the supporters of a particular sporting team or club, one of their passions is that their team wins at the premiership round. And so actually, their passion is focused towards an end point. 
And so I want to ask the question, as we look here into the gospel motivation that particularly Paul has as he writes this letter, where is he going? Where is the world heading? Where is the world heading to? Now, I suspect many of us have probably thought about our future. I know you've thought about your future because you're here at university. You've actually decided that your future will probably be better off by committing to this particular course of study that you've chosen. There's nothing wrong, inherently wrong, with thinking about the future. But my question here is, when you think about your future, have you also asked the question, is this consistent with how God wants me to live? Is this consistent with the future that God has for his life? Are you placing God first in the decisions that you're making? Now, the reason why I want to ask this is because I think Paul outlines for us in the letter to the 1 Thessalonians where he thinks the world is heading. And it starts with, primarily by way of overview for the whole letter of 1 Thessalonians, the motivation and the intention of God. The motivation and the intention of God. And the motivation that God has for the world is, well, John 3.15, that he loves the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Friends, the motivation that God has for this world is that he loves it. And the length that he goes to for it is to give his Son for it. love a world and give your only son for it, don't you? You need to be fairly committed to it and fairly motivated for it if that's the length that you will go to. And this, friends, is the God who is committed and passionate about the world in which we live. So, three big ideas, I think, that flow from the letter that Paul raises regarding the future of the world. And not surprisingly, they're all interconnected. Let's look at them briefly. Three big ideas. Firstly, Jesus' rule and reign. Secondly, the salvation of God's people. And thirdly, a time of God's wrath. I think these three ideas flow through this letter to one Thessalon- the first letter of the Thessalonians. The return of Jesus, the salvation of God's people, and a time of God's wrath or God's anger. Let me demonstrate this by pointing out a couple of places in the letter where these come up. Firstly, the return of Jesus. Friends, we know from Jesus himself that it is his intention that he will return one day. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, well, it's been a couple of thousand years. Is he really coming back soon? Well, the Lord Jesus has said that he is returning. And notice that Paul urges his readers that this is the case. So much so, he mentions it three times in the letter. This is where it's helpful if you've got a copy of the text in front of you. Chapter 1, verse 10. See what he says? In chapter 1, verse 10, he says, for the, uh, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Jesus is returning from where he is now, which is in heaven, and he's coming back again. Secondly, flip over to chapter 4, verse 16. Chapter 4, verse 16, where Paul writes, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven, with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Uh, Don't be distracted by the dead in Christ rising first. We're going to get to that in a couple of weeks when we look at chapter 4. What I want to point out here is, once again, Paul is reminding us that the Lord himself will come from heaven. A little bit later on in chapter 5, verse 23, he writes this, May God himself, the God of peace, 
sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's clear expectation is that the Lord Jesus will be returning. Paul's second big idea then regards the salvation of God's people. It is God's intent that his people will be saved. Uh, we see this in a couple of places. Uh, first, uh, in chapter 2, verse 12, where Paul says that we are encouraged, comforted and urged to live lives worthy of God who calls us into his kingdom and glory. God's plan is that his people will be called into his kingdom. Chapter 2, verse 12. Also, you see it in chapter 5, verse 9. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God's intent, firstly, is that Jesus will return. And secondly, God will save his people. Now, we don't need to go far to see that this is consistent with God's character and nature. Think but of a couple of stories through the Old Testament where God acts in history to save his people. The nation of Israel, for example, he redeems out of slavery to form them into a nation. When they're sent into exile, they're once again restored back into the promised land. Think of the promises that were made that one day God, Yahweh, would return and send the Messiah and that those who had been scattered to the ends of the earth in the nation of Israel will once again be restored and the Gentiles also would be included in that salvation. So what Paul is saying here is not a new theological idea. God's intent is that Jesus would return and that God would save his people. The third big idea then is, when he thinks about the future, is that Paul says God returns to judge. For there will be a time of God's wrath a time of God's punishment. Uh, we'll look a little bit more at this in depth in week six, in a couple of weeks' time. And if you've not really read much of the Bible before, or you've only read parts of the Bible, then this may be a fairly new idea. Uh, let me explain a little bit about what I mean here. Well, let's see. In chapter 1, verse 10, let's see how Paul describes it. We've read this one already. But in chapter 1, verse 10, he says, We are to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. In chapter 5, verse 9, we saw, God did not appoint us, and Paul there is talking about those who are the believers, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The clear teaching of Scripture here is that there will come a time when God's justice will be finally revealed, that those who continue to stand opposed to God willingly will receive the due punishment. And so for those who continue to turn aside from God, who continue to rebel against God, God will bring punishment against them. Such is the nature of his character in just. He doesn't just forget about the injustice of the world. He doesn't just forget about the rebellion against him. But rather, he carries out justice. And this sounds very difficult and at times unpleasant but it's a concept that we do need to grasp and wrestle with. And it is clearly taught in the pages of the New Testament. Now, before you leap to the conclusion that therefore God must be somehow an evil, malicious, mean-spirited type of person, can I direct you to another couple of passages in the New Testament for consideration? The first is in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 
1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 to 7, where the scripture here tells us that God, who is our Savior, desires that all men, all mankind, are to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. Yes, God's character is to be just and to punish those who are continually rebelling and wicked against Him. God's desire is that this not be the case for people, but that rather that people would turn back to Him and be saved and receive the salvation that is freely on offer in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is God's desire that people are saved. else do we see this? Well, Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 6. God's motive here is one of love. We saw this in John 3, 16, and we see it again here in Ephesians 2, 4 to 6. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. This is what God is passionate about, friends. He is about he is passionate about saving the lost, those who have turned aside from Him, those who are in rebellion against Him, both actively and passively. God is a God of mercy. He is not just willing to save, but goes to extraordinary lengths to save. And the extraordinary length here is that His own Son becomes man, takes on flesh, lives, gives an indication that He is the Messiah in His life and in His death and resurrection. This is the offer that is held out and has been for 2,000 years and continues to be held out even to this very day. This, friends, is what God is passionate about. Is this what you are passionate about? Now, the thing we need to keep reminding ourselves is that humanity has a problem And the problem is that in our disobedient state, we do continue to rebel against God. And this is a significant blockage which prevents us from being as passionate as God is about the world. But Paul seemed to think so in his writing. He recognises that this problem is so large that we can't fix it. We need God's help to fix the problem of our rebellion against Him. We can't by ourselves make ourselves right with Him which is why we need to accept His mercy and His free gift, His grace of His Son's death and resurrection. The other problem is we don't quite know how long we've got until God comes to finally enact justice on the world. Because the Lord could return any day. It may be this afternoon. It might be next week. It might be in a hundred years. But the thing we do know is that the word of the Lord is trustworthy. And so if God says Jesus will return, then friends, you can trust that this is a certainty. And I think this actually paints a snowy view of the world, where we see it going, and how then we should live now in the imminent return of the Lord Jesus. The solution that God offers is the death and resurrection of Jesus. This, friends, was a significant solution 
to the problem that we've got. And it is only through the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus that conversion, a change, is able to take place. And let's see how that's expressed in the lives of the Thessalonians. Uh, Go back with me to chapter 1. So in chapter 1, Paul summarizes this beautifully in verse 19. Read with me. He says there, For they themselves, sorry, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. In this case, Paul gives us a great description of what it means to receive conversion, to be changed. It involves two things, notice. It involves repentance and faith. It involves turning or repenting and serving the living and true God. See, as Paul points out, conversion involves more than just a turning, a point in time. It actually involves living in that turned aspect of life. It involves living by continually trusting God. Oh, let me give you an analogy that breaks down a couple of things that might work. Uh, You may know now that you drive regularly, that um, if you're uh, driving down a freeway, uh, if you drive onto the freeway the wrong way, now you're actually driving down what is an exit, and you think it's an entrance, you will go past two large red signs, one on either side of the road, preferably, and you know what the signs say? They say, wrong way, go back. Have you seen those signs before? You're on the freeway? They could have just as easily written the word repent. So as you're heading down what you think is the entrance to the freeway, you see these two big signs that say repent. I think there's a couple of reasons why they don't use the word repent. Firstly, because it's not a word that we use regularly in our sort of vernacular. And secondly, I think it's actually such a big distraction. Because people go past and go, repent? What's a repent? What is that? And by the time they've realised what's going on, they've already ploughed into the car that's coming up and it's the offering. But the big sign that says, wrong way, go back, that's what repentance is. Repentance is a recognition that you are going the wrong way and it's an active commitment to go in the opposite direction. See, it would be no good, would it, if halfway down, and I can't quite work out why they put these signs halfway down the ramp and not right at the beginning, although now I've noticed they put these big no-entry signs, so you should be very clear. You know, it's like saying a little no-entry sign, a bigger no-entry sign, wrong way, go back, and the last sign you'd expect to see and say, it's too late. But, but it's no good if all the sign says was, repent. Well, actually, it would be no good if all the sign says was, wrong way. See, there's no good if you're heading down to the exit ramp the wrong way to then stop your car halfway down. That actually doesn't get you out of the problem because you're still stuck because all the cars are coming off the off-ramp. You actually need to not only stop, you need to turn around and you need to go back the other way. Repentance is like that. It's not just stopping, but it's actually stopping, turning and going in the opposite direction. And this is what Paul says here in chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. Here in chapter chapter 1, verses 9 to 10, they turn to God from idols. But they don't just do that. They live a changed and very different life. Instead of serving an idol that was dead, that is mute, that is unable to actually do anything, notice the contrast. Paul says here, the Thessalonians are now serving the living and true God. As a result of God doing a work in them, they're now able to live a life that pleases Him. How do we know that God does a work in them? Well, let's look in chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. 
chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we read this. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now, for those of you who wonder whether or not the word of God is powerful, can I urge you to go back and read Genesis chapter 1? A demonstration of the power of the Word of God is very clearly seen there, isn't it? With a word, the universe comes into being. Uh, That's a pretty powerful word. With a word, in this case, chapter 1, verse 4, the declaration that Jesus is Lord and saves, people's lives are radically changed. And I take it here that in chapter 1, verse 4, Paul is not just appealing to the fact that the Thessalonians heard the word and cognitively sort of ticked the box and went, hmm, okay, Jesus is Lord. No, actually, the word comes with significant power because the Holy Spirit indwells those who accept the word of God as the word of God, which means they are then able to turn aside from their former way of life of serving idols to now live a life which is pleasing to God. See, here we see a radical change in the lives of people. And at this point, two things can be said. Firstly, can I encourage you that if uh, you hear someone who speaks about the fact that becoming a Christian will not involve much change, can I please urge you to gently ask them to go back and read their Bible? For I suspect the Bible says that becoming a Christian is a radical change. Because if you're not a Christian, then you are running or walking actively away from God. The call to conversion is a radical reorientation back towards God. It's not just a sort of mild Christianity arcing vaguely back towards God. Repentance is a complete turnaround. The life lived that honours God is towards God, radically away from another life. And the second thing that is to be said here is, have you been converted? Is this what your life is like? Have you turned away from idols? For an idol, in many respects, is anything that we worship, that we follow, that we're passionate about, that we spend our time consuming, that we think about, that we dream about, that we anything other than the true and living God. So my question is, what are you passionate about? Have you been converted? Because in this case, It's a clear demonstration that when the Word of God comes, when you accept it and trust it, your life will be radically different. Now, to some extent, this radical difference may take some time to become apparent. But I take it that, as we'll see over the coming weeks, our life should be continually becoming more and more like Jesus. So my question is, have you been converted? And some of you may be here first time you're sort of being confronted by this reality that life could be different for you. That conversion is actually possible and that God brings it about. So what would this life look like? Well, let's see from 1 Thessalonians how Paul describes the conversion of the Thessalonians. He describes it, I take it, in three ways. In the light of the past, in the light of the present and in the light of the future. In the light of the past, Paul recognises that God has done a great work in them. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. God has turned them aside from their worship of idols in chapter 1, verse 9. And they are now 
in the present, living a life of great example to all of the other believers. Chapter 1, verse 7, you see there, that news of the way in which they're living and the fact they've turned from idols, I take it, has now become an example for all of the other believers in the surrounding region. Notice also that at the time of Paul's writing, the present, the Thessalonians are demonstrating their conversion by actively waiting for the return of Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 10. They've been called into the kingdom of God and as we'll see in the next couple of weeks, they demonstrate their faith and love and hope in chapter 1, verse 3 and also chapter 3, verse 6 and chapter 3, verse 8. In the future... Paul gives them certain expectations. And one of these is demonstrated in chapter 4, verse 1, where he encourages them to continue as they had started and continue to look for the return of Jesus. Past, present and future. Now, it is interesting to point out here that unlike other Pauline letters, Paul doesn't, in 1 Thessalonians, spend a lot of time talking about what the lives of the believers were like before they were converted. Other than this reference here, that they turn from idols. However, we do see that the change that has come about in their lives is not just an intellectual one. It has involved a significant change in their emotions, in the way in which they feel both about God and about other people, and also about their actions. So let's see in Acts chapter 17, turn with me to Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 9, Let's see what it was like when they actually became Christians. Uh, So in Acts, we read the story of uh, when Paul came to Thessalonica. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 9. When they, and presumably this is Paul and his sort of band of apostles and church planters, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few of the prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. I always smile when I read that, I'm not quite sure what what, some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come to you. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others postpone them letting them go. See, Paul is in this one town of Thessalonica for three weekends. He's not there for very long. But as he declares in the synagogue primarily to the Jews and then to the Greeks when the Jews reject him, what does he declare? Acts 17, verse 3, This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, the promised one of God. And so despite the persecution of the Jews, Paul speaks of the risen Lord Jesus Christ The Holy Spirit comes with power and works in the lives of the hearers. Lives are changed from following idols to now following the living and true God. It brings great joy in the lives of people who hear the word and people's lives are radically changed. My 
questions per se. Have you been converted? Is this what has taken place in your life? Have you recognized that at some point in your disobedient state against God, you have been worshipping an idol rather than worshipping the true and living God? And do you now live a life which is passionate about the things that God is passionate about? So the challenge today for us, I take it, is twofold. Firstly, if you're here and you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, can I encourage you very seriously to consider the claim that's been made here in this room. God is on for you. God has shown you great mercy and love in sending His Son to die for you. Will you accept it? Will you turn aside from the life that you're living, which is disobedient towards God and following idols, and now follow the risen, living Lord Jesus Christ? Will you live a life which is radically transformed? Because if that's you, a day is coming when God will hold you to account for the rebellion that you're currently living in against Him. And friends, if that is you, then that day could be this afternoon. It could be tomorrow. It could be next week. Do not delay, for you do not know when the Lord Jesus will return. Now, if you're here today and you've been converted... My question is, what example are you setting for the other believers? At so many levels, what example are you setting for those who know you well? Say, your family, your housemates, the way in which you speak, the way in which you care for them. Are you other person-centred and caring for their needs before yourself? Uh, What about in the context of the EU? How does your conversion reflect among the lives of the other believers here on campus? And how does your conversion reflect reflect in the lives of those who aren't believers here on the campus, in your classes, among your friendships, and not just here on campus, but what about here in Sydney? Has the EU become an example of those whose lives have been radically transformed? So not only other Christian groups around campus, congregations, Christian campus groups, any other Christian, but also unbelievers. For I take it that the Thessalonians were obedient to the command of God and lived such radically different lives that they became an example to all the other believers in the area. Why would this not be possible here for us as well if we followed the word and the command of God? So what then of your life? Have you been converted? Have you taken the command of God seriously? And are you passionate about what God is passionate about? The salvation of His people and the imminent return of Jesus. So what would this look like to finish? Three key things, I think, for us in the EU community. I think it would look like a significant commitment to the Word of God. A Word that we know is true, that is trustworthy, and that comes from God in the power of the Holy Spirit. Our lives are radically changed as we hear and respond obediently to it. This will be demonstrated, I take it, by a keenness for us individually to read the Word, to dwell in it and meditate on it. It will be demonstrated, I take it, by a keenness in our community, maybe in our faculty community, in our wider community, to be reading and hearing from the Word. And in some senses, you being here today, is a demonstration of that commitment, that you're willing to set aside an hour to come to public meetings. In which case, can I encourage you to continue as you are doing, 
that you would be greatly edified by hearing this word taught. Secondly, I take it it's a commitment to personal godliness, to living a life that is thoroughly dependent on God, and to live such radically changed lives, both in terms of an intellectual and rational response, but not only that, but also in an emotional response and a pragmatic outworking, that people look at us and see that we are clearly different from those round about us by the way in which we speak, the way in which we act, the way in which we love and the care that we have, not only for our fellow believers, but also those outside those who are fellow believers. Now, this may sound a bit unreasonable, it may sound far-fetched, but God worked in the lives of these people and they had Paul with them for three weekends. What a great privilege we've got that week on week we can encourage one another as we read the Bible with one another and hear it taught to us. But what would it require? Well, I take it if you want to love others, you need to know them and be known by them. It requires a fairly significant time investment. Acting means if you're going to care for and love those round about you here on campus, you actually need to be here. You might need to so rearrange your timetable that you can make time to do that. Not for your own sake, but for the sake of others both believers and unbelievers. Are you willing to do this for the sake of the Lord Jesus? And finally, I take it, it also looks like a commitment to the return of Jesus. And I think thinking well about this and responding rightly helps maintain the urgency in what we do. If you knew the Lord was definitely returning on Friday at 5 o'clock, which is now only tomorrow at 5 o'clock, would this radically change what you did in the next 27 hours? What would you not do? What would you commit to doing? My friends, the reality is the Lord might return tomorrow at 5 o'clock. He may come this afternoon at 5 o'clock. Part of knowing that radically changes how you live your life. I think other than driving you to, com- to a commitment of others, who are believers and encouraging them to continue to think that way, it also, I think, drives us to a commitment to others within a vocation. That in our urgency, we would continue to declare to them God's great motivation of loving them, God's passion for them, and His commitment that they too be converted, that they turn from idols and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So my question is, how passionate are you Where are your passions? Where are your desires? Are they in alignment with God's passion and God's desires? Have you become converted? Have you turned from following idols and not worshipping the living and true God, such that life is now directed towards loving and serving the true and living God, the risen Lord Jesus Christ? Would you pray with me? Father God, we give you great thanks for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his life, death and resurrection. And Father, we ask, please, that you would help us, for we so desperately need your help. Father, we thank you for pouring out your Holy Spirit into our hearts that we may live lives that please you and bring glory to the name of the Lord Jesus. Father, we pray that as Christians we may do this more and more, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.